Welcome to the Leading Life Science Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Damian Wilpitz. I'm a life science research manager and consultant. I'm here to help scientists and to help those who are managing to help science be successful. In this radio podcast, we'll explore current strategies and practices taken by some of the most respected life science leaders of today. We'll be hosting guests who lead independent or academic research labs, startup pharmaceuticals and biotech entrepreneurs, and other operational support leaders, VPs, chief operating officers, managers, and the like. We'll explore some of the following lessons, what steps they've taken to reach their current scientific goals, what unexpected challenges they faced along the way, and what tools and skills that have been critical to their success. We'll listen to what advice they would give to those who are willing to follow them and to pursue a career in leading life sciences. Again, thank you for joining and welcome to the Leading Life Science Radio Podcast. Hello, everyone. This is episode number two. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Jonathan Thon. Jonathan is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and Boston's Brigham and Women's Hospital. His lab is studying the molecular mechanisms and the biogenesis of platelets from progenitor cells and stem cells. Now him and his team have been developing new technologies to bring their research to real-world clinical applications. He's co-founded the startup Biotech Platelet Biogenesis. They're developing new technology to making platelets, which will help to solve this limited availability of this precious resource to clinics around the world. Jonathan is an amazing person. I've had the pleasure of working closely with him and have seen him develop his research to helping real-world issues. He's leading an amazing team of dedicated individuals to making this happen. I'm amazed by his will and tenacity in the science and entrepreneurial world. Let's chat with him today and hear about his journey and see what awesome lessons he can teach us so that we can be successful in our life science journey. We know his science, but what does it take to launch a successful biotech team? Let's listen in. Welcome again. I'm Damien Wilpitz, and I have here my good friend, dear colleague here, Dr. Jonathan Thon. Thank you so very much, Jonathan, for joining us. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. So first things first, let's jump into a little bit about what you do. And can you tell the audience out there a little bit about your science? Absolutely. Well, maybe I'll begin by giving you a little bit of background. Absolutely. I'm an assistant professor at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. I am also a co-founder of a biotech company, Platelet Biogenesis. And the company really has meant to, has been developed to translate work that was begun in the academic lab. Now I work on platelets, specifically these are the cells in the blood that stop you from bleeding. And what I've been trying to do is actually create them, not synthetic platelets, but the real deal. And uh, so essentially what I've done to get that far is to try to create a, develop a platelet bioreactor or a uh, device that sits outside of the human body that can replicate characteristics of the human body to trigger new platelet production from progenitor cells, parent cells, that we derive from stem cells or uh, uh, megakaryocytes, which are the direct precursors to platelets. So basically, it's kind of like your own internal band-aid, right? The platelets essentially are that. They're the band-aids of the bloodstream. And the, the problem in the current system right now is that there just aren't enough platelets to meet demand. And so what we're trying to do by making platelets outside of the human body, that is, uh, disconnect the supply of platelets from human volunteer donors, which are of limited supply and also risky, and be able to provide platelets to everyone who needs them, uh, which is just about everyone <laughs> at some point or another. You know, Jonathan, this is really cool is that you're actually approaching that part of where the bench to uh, bedside connectivity really matters. And I think a lot of people don't realize some of the basic research that we do really impacts the greater community. So talk a little bit about what brought you into science and, and how you actually managed to translate it into actually really having a real world life impact? 
why science? <laughs> well, what got me into science was <laughs> well, what got me into science was a fundamental curiosity of the world and how things work. And it didn't have to be platelets. It could have been applied to just about anything. It my career trajectory, so in so far as it uh, happened, had me fall into this particular field. But I think I would have been just as happy studying anything. Uh, but I, I did end up falling into platelets through my graduate studies and in falling into platelets, trying to understand how they work and how they're made. And as a, a scientist, it's not just the understanding of, of the basic biology of the cell that one's looking into, but also how it's applied to the larger world. I think a lot of us become scientists because we have a vision for how the world should be and want to do something to help change the world in a way that makes it better. And so in thinking about that particular vision I had for, for the world and how I could make it better, I started to identify problems that I could touch on with my particular background and understanding. And the, the, the question of a, a deep need for platelets and the current risks associated with platelet transfusions just happened to be that for me. Now, I began, and I still am, I guess, an academic scientist, but doing purely academic science has never been enough for me. And I say that because, on the one hand, yes, I really much value the better understanding of the natural world that derives from my academic research. But I think that understanding really amounts to nothing if it can't be applied for the betterment of the world. And what I've done with uh, my efforts founding the company and what I've tried to do with my research throughout has been take the new understandings that happen both in my lab and in the labs of others, communicate that to the larger world that is supporting this research because what we do, we do for them, and then find ways of adapting that research or that new understanding to better the current situation. And in my hands and in my mind, that betterment was done through the creation of a company that would help us translate the academic work to the clinic. You know, this is really great that you are making that transition from an academic setting into bringing it to real people and through the market. So let's go a little bit more granular then. And I think a lot of people... They love and believe in the vision and they follow that, especially when you can make real world uh, connections. However, there is that little gap in the details. And what are some of those steps to make that transition from an academic setting into more of a business setting? What are, and what, what are some of the transferable uh, kind of skills that were taught to you or were you just kind of thrown into it? And what were some of the things that you wish that your graduate and postdoctoral training had prepared you for? And let's talk a little bit about that. And I think these are some good skills that most of us wish and could uh, seek out. And what, how did you uh, seek out some of those, those skill sets and strategies? So that's a very big question, Damien. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best to answer it. I, let me know if there are parts that you want more detail on, yeah, at well, least for myself. Yeah, well, let's, let's start out with um, something simpler, the funding. The funding? <laughs> well, that's well let, let's, let's back it up a little bit. I think the, the very first part of your question, which I really think is the root of the, the larger question you're asking, is how does one get to where one wants to be? And we've talked about this before. I don't think there is anything like a career trajectory or plan that one can follow. There is no standard operating procedure for a successful and productive career in sciences like there isn't in any field. I think that sort of got, gets forgotten or perhaps has gone forgotten in the academic setting as of late because what was taught to me going through the system and what I see with my colleagues and, and my own students is there's this perception that one does an undergraduate, one then does graduate school, one then does a postdoc, and one becomes an academic faculty member. And that is a very clearly laid out path that one follows if one is successful, and if one isn't successful, they fall off the path. 
And that's not the case at all. That's never been the case, but uh, that's certainly not the case now. Where I think one needs to begin uh, is for, once you're an undergraduate, graduate school I think is a great idea for a lot of people. Uh, you should have some sort of vision or understanding of what it is you want to do. And that may not necessarily be what you end up doing for the rest of your life. It could be what you do for just a year or two before you jump on to something else. But you should certainly have some sort of general understanding of what it is you want to do for the near term. Now, what path you take to get there, I think, has got a lot to do with where you want to go. And my advice to anyone listening to this podcast, and certainly for trainees following uh, this academic trajectory, is to set their sights on a destination and then do whatever they can to get there as quickly as possible. So beeline for it. And now that beeline may take you outside of your comfort zone, may take you outside of the, the traditional and I use quotation marks here, the traditional route that one has, one thinks is needed to get there. But again, those, those paths don't really exist. What you should do is, is try to figure out how you can get to your destination as quickly as possible. Now, once you've kind of loosely figured out how to get there as quickly, what you would need to do to get there as quickly as possible, the next steps, I think, are trying to make the impossible happen. <laughs> By definition, the path from where you are to where you want to be doesn't exist, right? You brought it up. Um, you're probably the only one that has even considered doing it this way. And now you've got to make that a reality. And I think that is where graduate school training is very useful. And that is because when you're doing graduate school training, you're learning um, how to make the most with limited resources in an area that's not very well understood at all um, with um, a very, very rudimentary understanding of the field that you're in, which goes developing as you spend more time in it and you go making every possible mistake under the sun. And so though, that's the exact same skill set you then need for your own career to try to uh, carve a path through unknown, uh, unknown lands and get you to that final destination. Now, resources or finances, like you alluded to in your uh, second part of the question, is definitely a, an element to it. And depending on what your vision is and what your destination is, it may be a larger element or a smaller one. Certainly, um, for what I'm trying to do, which is realize a commercially viable platelet product, a, a platelet unit that can be distributed uh, to clinics worldwide, that requires a lot of capital. And where I have had to learn, uh, and, and training I've had to self-teach, self has been how to bring in money from non-traditional funding sources. And, and in, in this case, I'm using traditional in the sense of what I was taught to, where I was taught to go get money from as a graduate student or as a postdoc. In academia, you're taught that funding comes from federal sources or from societies. That's true, but there are numerous other funding sources available. There is bootstrapping, which is pretty much a fancy term for you putting down your own money to see your own vision. Uh, friends and family, which is essentially just that. You, you plug your parents or your cousins or your girlfriend or your spouse to help bankroll your, um, your path to, see, to that vision. There are private investors, people with a lot of money who perhaps you can convince in the value of what you're trying to do and want to become partners and, and see you there. There are also um, people who, want, who would become interested should they see a financial return or something in it for them. And so if you're taking a more commercial angle to whatever it is you're trying to do, there has to be a business case that you build around your vision to make to justify why someone else would invest in this, what, what they have to gain as a result. And if you start pursuing that line, there are 
companies actually that specialize in giving money to people or to companies for the purposes of helping them realize their visions, provided they can get something in return. And so figuring out what those individual companies would want to see in terms of uh, compensation, and it's not always financial, uh, but what they would want to see in terms of compensation would help you build a business case for them and help solicit that sort of financing All right, before uh, to you get, get you there. Too much into detail. Let me recap and maybe you can help me to piece this all together. So a lot of it you're probably saying is that it requires a clear vision in your part on understanding the basis of your research and why you're trying to do it and how to like bring it to like what you say to market. And then you're delving into now parts of your academic training doesn't teach you is the business side of things the financial side and the market and the selling aspect. So one of the things I really liked that you did mention is that you were taking certain skill sets and kind of like recapitulating it within a different market, like say uh, the mindset of a graduate student where you're basically what we call like the, the pilot experiments or bootstrapping or trying to figure out something with very limited resources. And I think one of the things that is always hard is to translate your science and to more of a sales type strategy. And I think this is where we're going now into um, talking about different types of funding sources. So can you talk to us a little bit about that kind of uh, experience and how you've managed to be able to um, communicate your science in a way that compels people to want to like provide resources and services to help you get this uh, off the ground. Sure. There, for for the uh, just to start, I, I think it's important to mention that there is a lot of very good um, skills that one learns both in the undergraduate and graduate level uh, through an academic career. There are also a lot of areas where you're left wanting and certainly some areas where you receive absolutely no training but are skills that you absolutely require. And we can delve on those in a little bit. Uh, to get back to your question, uh, sorry, remind me what your question was. because I, I, oh, I think uh, we're, uh, we're now delving into communication, communicating your science oh, that right, kind of right. compels more so, the business, business world. Yeah, so um, yeah, that's exactly where I was going. So. In, in graduate school, you do learn how to communicate your science. You have to because you give lab meetings, you give uh, departmental talks, you often give national uh, conferences, you write papers, you apply for funding from uh, grants, grant sources, federal grant sources or society grant sources. These are all uh, mechanisms that require your communication of your science and your vision. and with every talk you give, you get better at it. And so I, I, I'm not going to deal too much in the specifics of, specifics of how to give a proper sales pitch because I think most people coming from this particular background have a fair understanding of what's required. What I would say, though, is taking it to the next level, one really has to have a deep understanding of who they're talking to and what that person is looking for. And that's where... I feel like we tend to drop the ball a little bit as academics or certainly um, during the academic training that we receive. Now we're taught to think that what we do is super important and everyone should care about it because we care about it. But that's not at all the case. <laughs> Most people have no interest in what it is that we do. And it's your mission to try to get them interested because by getting them interested, you get them involved, you get the funding that you need, uh, you even get the public exposure or whatever it is you're, you're after. Now, to get them interested or invested, you need to figure out what it is they care about. And sometimes they, they don't care about the underlying science, but they care about what it means to their mother that's in the clinic uh, having suffered some form of cancer and now they just 
want to know that someone is working on that particular form of cancer. So if you're talking to a society made up of cancer patients uh, or ex-cancer patients or, or, or people with loved ones that have had cancer, focusing on the mechanisms or underlying interesting science behind the cancer work that you're doing is going to go nowhere, really. They, they're not the kind of they maybe don't have the fundamental understanding of these refined pathways to really understand why they're so interesting or significant, but they do have an appreciation of the value of cancer research and certainly have a desire to see that research through. So maybe talking to them on a more general level about what, uh, what cancer is and what you're doing is going to, how what you're doing is going to help address that need is a better approach. You know, as scientists, I've often heard that uh, a complaint in, in talks that people dumb down their science or one shouldn't try to dumb down their science. I think that's an absolute mistake. I think it's a mistake to think that by speaking to the, the needs of your audience, you're in any way dumbing it down. I think, you're in any, in, I think what you're actually doing is elevating the science because the science is nothing if you can't communicate it. You know, sometimes they don't want to hear the specifics. They want to hear the generalities. Sometimes they, they don't want to hear the generalities. They want to hear the specifics. And sometimes they just want to hear dollar amounts. You know, that's, that's certainly the case if you're approaching uh, a lot of these private companies is they're less interested in how you're going to make money and more interested in how much money you're going to make and on what time frames. And so I think it's really important to know your audience because there are they are the vehicles that, or the tools that you then um, collaborate with to see your vision through. And they're all parts. You're part of that equation as well. The, the person that gives you the money to see your research through is no less valuable than the scientist who brings in the ideas or the technician who actually does the work. They're all components of a larger machine. The, um, the, the PI or the, the CEO or uh, the, the management is really the captain leading the ship. And what you're trying to do is pull all these pieces together and get the ship oriented in the right direction. So you were talking a little bit about, again, the, the salesmanship side of, of your work and your science. And I get that we definitely have to like practice it and be able to get our uh, science across to the, our audience. But how do you seek out that audience? Where do you first start out? Do you first start out uh, with your, uh, within some of the federal type of uh, funders, some of these small business grants? Or do you hit the road and start networking and going to networking events or incubators? What were some of the one ways that you actually got a lot of good practice on communicating uh, your science on a business level? Well, I think what you need to do first and foremost is figure out what it is you're trying to accomplish. And this is why I began with that uh, concept of vision. Because depending on where you want to go, what your destination is, is how you, you then plan on getting there. You know, certainly if what you're trying to do is basic science, you're going to have a very hard time approaching anyone who doesn't share that underlying uh, desire to understand the, the fundamental mechanisms of what it is you're working on. And so that then um, determines your audience. You know, you, if, you're, if what you're interested in is resolving a particular pathway and you really want to just fundamentally understand how that particular piece of science works, you're going to need to uh, communicate that to people who share that passion or vision for that piece of underlying science. And that is likely going to be a, uh, a subcommittee of scientists in that particular field, which in turn means that you're applying to particular uh, agencies or federal funding programs that specialize in that particular area of science. I think when one often wants just money to see their projects through, but applying for money to everyone for everything is not only not going to work, but a huge distraction for the investigator because there are a lot of people for which your application is going to be a non-starter. You know, if mm -hmm. you're 
working on a biology project and you apply to a, um, an institute that does physics, you, you may write the best possible application and they're just going to dismiss it. It's not going to matter to them. Just like if you might be doing something that really solves a fundamental problem for, for a first world issue, but, the, but applying to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, as much money as they have to, to give to basic science projects, is most likely not going to succeed because they're not funding first world problems, they're funding third world problems. And so you really need to have an understanding of who your audience is and who to target your efforts for financing or, or whatever it is you're trying to do, be it uh, publicity or um, just generating gener uh, interest in your work. So it sounds like more of a surgical type of financial management, if you will, rather than what some, uh, some researchers do is that they do that whole shotgun approach, let's apply to everything and see what happens, shake it all out. I well, think I, think, I think there's a happy medium. You certainly should apply for everything that you're eligible for, but you shouldn't waste your time applying too broadly for things you're not. So I would, I, I would try to um, suggest people focus their efforts a little bit on who they're more likely to get funding from. But once those, are, those specific areas are identified, target them all, you know, because you're most likely not going to succeed on your first or second one. And you certainly want to have a, a, a bit of options, some options there for you, um, should some of your efforts fall through. So I know you very well, Jonathan. Like, we talk a lot about this. And one of the things I admire about you is your definitely mindset of, trial and error and let's let's gung-ho give it a try however sometimes I find that others get bogged down in the analysis paralysis side of things mm -hmm. um, I'm sure you come across with this with some of your students and some of your trainees that get stuck in that manner what advice would you recommend to like some of the other investigators that do struggle with this uh, with this issue and, and they want to be able to pursue these kinds of um, approaches within their own science, within the business side. What would you recommend that they, they do to get over that side, of, uh, that mentality, you know, <laughs> that psychological Damien, block? Yeah, you know, Damien, I think a lot of it's just personality. And uh, I'll, I'll give you my advice. I, I don't know how many people actually follow it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do tend to be a shoot-from-the-hip kind of person. I, I, I do... I tend to break down uh, walls and just set my sights on where I want to go and uh, do anything I can to get there. Now, that does mean I fail a lot and often, often publicly, <laughs> and that can be very scary for a lot of people. It's never bothered me. I, I've never really cared. Uh, my failures have been learning experiences for me, and I think that's what uh, people need to remember if they're going to take that approach, is that it's very easy to make fun of someone else's failures because you're not the one putting yourself out there and on the line. It's much harder to put yourself on the line and then fail, but you learn so much from that experience that um, you approach the next uh, opportunity or the, or the next effort with a, a deeper understanding of what can go wrong and how to deal with it. And then the, the third point I'd like to make is that when you just charge for things, the worst thing that can happen is that you don't get there, which is where you were before you charged <laughs> for there. So you really haven't got much to lose. Uh, the alternative would be what? You, you sit around worrying about um, what could go wrong or how best to approach it while someone else beats you to it. So I, I, I mean, for, for my students and for my uh, trainees, uh, and certainly for my colleagues, I would suggest that if you think you have an, a good idea uh, or a good way of doing something or something, or you see something that needs to be done, then just go for it. You know, you don't really have much time to sit around and dawdle. And worst case scenario, it, it doesn't pan out. And it's good to know that so that you can then approach it again using a different strategy sooner than you would having uh, thought about it for however long and then come to that same conclusion you know, Later. thank or, you so or, or very much. That uncertainty. Thank you so very much for bringing, uh, bringing that up, that 
and the, the, the worst of it that you'll end up back where you were anyways, just giving it, giving it a try. I think putting that into perspective helps. Uh, what were some of, uh, who were some of your influences that kind of like helped you see this, uh, this side of science, the world, the business, and even in uh, just general life? I know for myself, I see my own uh, old uh, PI investigator and mentors, but also like some, my father, who was a former master chief in the military, gave me a lot of guidance in that, uh, in that matter, and it's still applicable to this day. And I think a lot of us don't really think about the outside of our academic training, that these things that can apply. Can you go a little bit about some of your influences? Yeah, I, so it's funny you mentioned your father. Certainly my father was a huge influence on me. Um, my mother as well. Both very stubborn people. Uh, very bright, <laughs> but would, would never take no for an answer. And I think a lot of that's rubbed off on me. Uh, I, I've had a lot of influences in my life. And I continue to have a lot of influences, some more major than others. Certainly, I, I've been fortunate to have an incredible... PI as a graduate student, Dr. Dana Devine, who is currently the Vice President of Canadian Blood Services, uh, but a professor as well at the University of British Columbia. And uh, more recently, my PI, my, my postdoctoral mentor when I started at Brigham Women's Hospital, Joseph Italiano, who's also a professor at Harvard Medical School. Both uh, very, very intelligent people, very driven. Uh, both uh, approached situations very differently. Uh, from, from Dana, I, I got more of that uh, calculated uh, understanding of the problem and how best to approach it. Uh, she was very cognizant about uh, resources and strategy and uh, also um, very, very direct in how she interacted with myself and and with others, and uh, I think a lot of that really rubbed off on me. Joe has been uh, a bit of uh, a different uh, influence in that he's, he's very, very charismatic. Not to say that Dana isn't, but in a different way. Joe's very friendly, very easy to approach, and really uh, fed me uh, a perspective on how to approach things from a much more humanistic perspective. People aren't just what they are uh, trying to accomplish and, and timelines and schedules, but there are also other factors at play that uh, contribute to their productivity. And as a, from a management perspective, I found that to be of very important, uh, both in managing the students I had during my, my postdoctoral term, but also now in managing much larger collaborations with people. So uh, those, those have certainly been influences. But I, I got to say, I've been influenced a lot by pretty much everyone I've interacted with. My students as well teach me things all the time. So I think what's important is to not close yourself off to doing things differently. You know, just because you've been doing something one way your whole life doesn't mean it's the right way. And it just takes that other person doing something a little bit differently to... Um, to make you consider that maybe you should try adopting some of those skills or, or some of those approaches to your own work. You know, not necessarily take everything, but pick and choose. You know, I'm going to shift gears here a little bit and go into something that we're naturally segueing into is the personnel, people. I don't think many people realize how much time and effort gets put into managing personnel, the personalities, the emotions, if you will. And we, we joke a lot within the academic community that like, it's kind of like herding cats. <laughs> well, I, absolutely. And managing people is probably one of the biggest things one's going to have to do in any sort of leadership position, both in academia and outside of academia. But it's certainly the one thing that we receive close to no training in <laughs> during our uh, our undergraduate and graduate education. The, the thing is that labs are comprised of people. And when you're in a lab doing graduate work or even during your postdoctorate work, unless you're extremely fortunate to be given students by your PI to mentor, and in that regard, both Dana and Joe were fantastic for me, 
um, and that they trusted me to manage uh, people and learn to manage people uh, at a very early stage. But unless you're in a sort of in a, a climate like that that really supports it, you don't see another person working directly underneath you until you what start your own research lab. Mm -hmm. And all of the mistakes one makes in managing people, you're going to make. You know, there's no there's no way. Even with classes, there's no way of um, averting. Uh, sorry, uh, there's no way of of bypassing any of these mistakes. And you sort of have to go through them, live them, and every th possible scenario that you can imagine will play itself out in your lab at some point or another. <laughs> You, 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 just, you just become more experienced in handling them. And again, that comes from actually managing people. And so I think one area where we certainly could afford to have uh, better training as academics, but we would certainly benefit from having someone teach us at some point in our careers is how to deal with some of the uh, HR issues that inevitably arise. How much would you say that you thought about it beforehand and then when you actually experienced it where you were, where you were like, I wish I knew this before. And where, where would you suggest somebody seek out some of that information? <laughs> right. Well, I always so tell some, uh, some postdocs as they're, as they're working, if you get an opportunity to work with uh, a tech or an undergraduate, take that opportunity. So oh, that yeah, absolutely take it. But uh, the, So during, again, I was very fortunate as a uh, graduate student that I, I got access to co-op students or summer students to uh, co -op work students. with. Uh, I would say, though, that back then I was maybe 10% of my time was spent thinking about them and um, their contribution to the project. <laughs> and increasingly, as my own career has um, advanced, that percentage has increased dramatically to the point where I, it's, it's pretty much like 90, close to 100% <laughs> of my workday now is just thinking about the people working under me, the people working with me, and the people I'm trying to work with. It, it, it really takes up all of your time. Uh, in terms of where to get that education, you know, if you're, if you're a graduate student or you are a postdoc, I would lobby your mentor, your PI, to assign you someone to work with, even for a short period of time, or specifically go out and seek out collaborations. Because working with another postdoc or another graduate student, or even another professor, still develops those same sort of um, skills in how to manage people, how to manage projects, how to deal with personalities. So I would expose my, I, I, if I were um, a trainee, I would try to get that exposure exposure as early as possible and as often as possible. Uh, in terms of formal training, you know, it, it's not such a bad idea when you're at conferences or you're with um, people who have more experience than you in this to just ask them. You know, every time I've asked that question, I've gotten some ridiculous stories uh, about issues that have come up in the lab and uh, you know, inevitably those are learning experiences too. You see how an experienced mentor dealt with that situation. Maybe they dealt with it wholly inappropriately, which has been the case enough <laughs> times, but at least that gives you the opportunity to see how they dealt with it and what you would, and consider what you would do differently. And I think that's an important exercise for anyone aspiring to be uh, in a leadership position at some point. So now you are definitely like full on in your own research lab and in this company. Now you were telling me how you're basically like focused like 90% of your time on the personnel management aspect. I, I think always there's that trickiness on finding those teams and finding those teams that actually will help you move your vision. So there is a little bit of like, uh, influencing them one way or the other or there's like certain rewards and systems put in place but i think part of it comes from the recruitment side so let's ask you the golden uh, question where do you find these people how have you found 
And I'm sure if you have a few uh, horrible stories, it's like, definitely don't go there. <laughs> you know, you find people everywhere. But some important uh, pieces of advice that I, I think are uh, very important to put out there are first, you definitely need to hire slow and fire fast because uh, a bad person in a lab is just going to drain you. It's going to hold down the lab and you can't get rid of them fast enough. Uh, but on the flip side of that, if there are a couple people that you consider uh, might be good for the lab, take your time, you know, really interview them, really take them out for dinner, you know, get, get a feel for what their personalities are like, how they vibe with the group. Uh, do call those references, you know, <laughs> they're there for a reason. You really need to have an understanding and you can't just do this by email because there's a lot of things that people won't write down in letters uh, that you get when you talk to them on the phone. You know, they may not even say it, but you can tell from the tone of their voice or the choice of words that they use in describing the individual. So, Thank you, Jonathan. Can you say that again for our audience? <laughs> so I think, I think that's very important. Uh, the other piece of advice I would give is definitely continue to raise expectations and keep the bar high. You know, I, I heard this before and I'm finding it increasingly true that you're never going to hire someone as good as yourself. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that there's this tendency to lower your expectations or to be more forgiving um, of the limitations of other people um, as you're doing the work because you see what you would have done in that position, but you certainly can't because you're busy. Or you, it's just no longer practical for you to be doing that particular job, which is why you hired someone else in the first place. But you notice that they're not living up to your particular expectations for that position. Now, the tendency there is to lower your expectations and sort of let them do what they're able to do. And while I don't support coming down hard on everyone for everything all the time, I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't or I have never lowered my expectations. I've kept my expectations as, as high as they've ever been and have done my best to elevate the people around me uh, to that level, just as I was elevated working in the labs of my mentors who were far superior scientists than I was and I am. And, I've, and it, it motivated me to try to achieve more and be better, uh, be a better thinker, be a, a better scientist, be a better manager as a result. And I think that leads to something that was said by a previous guest, which is it's very important to lead by example, where when you're in a, in a lab dynamic or in any sort of uh, um, leadership dynamic, it's your responsibility to show everyone around you and your team what can be accomplished. Because if you really are the, the best person you can possibly hire, then let them know what um, your expectations of them are by showing what you're capable of doing. You know, it's very easy for someone to say, oh, it's impossible to get that experiment done in a week because, you know, it just can't be done. I've never seen it done. Well, do it. You know, you, you can show them it can be done in a week. You can show them how to do it in a week. And once that mental barrier uh, falls, falls away, once they see that something is possible, and in fact, the person asked them to do it has done it themselves and, and can do it, uh, then I've found that, uh, that my students have been much more, uh, much more engaged in trying to meet that standard and have seen a path forward. That, that sort of mental barrier has fallen away and they can, they can see how something can be accomplished or what, what I would like to accomplish can be accomplished in the time frame that I, that I seem to think it's possible. Otherwise, what I found is if you don't do that, if you don't lead by example, if you don't show them how to accomplish the things that you want, uh, all you're doing is setting what in their minds are unrealistic expectations and they end up um, frustrated by the fact that you're asking them to do some things that just can't be done or they think can't be done and they, and they don't know how to do them. And you're the best person to show them how because you're the one that's figured it out. You, hopefully you wouldn't be asked them to do something unless you didn't think it was possible. So it's always nice to like invest some of that early on training and show them exactly how it can and should be done. And 
and then hold them accountable to that. Yeah, I mean, there is nothing more important for a mentor to do than to invest in their trainees. You're, as a, uh, a lab, um, as a PI, as a lab manager, what you should be doing all the time is trying to figure out what you can do for the people working with you to help them realize their potential. And in some cases, that means giving them the funding they need. In other cases, it's the uh, support or the confidence that they need. In other cases, it's just showing them how to do things or how to avoid some, some of the pitfalls you've experienced. But you can never go awry if you continue to invest your time and energy in making them better. You know what? I'm so glad that you were, you're taking that same perspective as I do about leadership and management is that you almost become that servant to those who serve you and support them to help you. And I think that really matters significantly. And I think I find that within my own life and career that the people that actually are supporting you, they need help. And sometimes it's you that can actually uh, unhinge that. But unfortunately, it's not necessarily the case all the time. So do you find that, okay, you know what, I'm not going to say do you find, I'm sure you've definitely find barriers within uh, the business world. What are some of the, like, say the administrative business side of things that kind of like hinders this process and you're just kind of like, wow, I wish this can be done better? <laughs> there are a lot. <laughs> administrative barriers uh, <laughs> to, to see some things through. And so getting back to maybe something I said earlier is if you have a desire to see something done, I would just do it. Um, you know, don't worry about the barriers. It's, I've always said it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. <laughs> Uh, at the end of the day, uh, I, I'm, and I'm not supporting any sort of criminal activity here. What I'm saying is that if there is a way of doing it faster and more directly, just just go for it. You know, the a lot of these administrative um, barriers that we talk about, a lot of the administrative bureaucracy, particularly in larger institutes and larger companies, are the result of rules put in place whose spirit was to support the project, support the work, support the, the research. But due to legal uh, concerns or um, efforts to standardize across multiple different areas, the rules have become um, prohibitive in not allowing things to happen. And that can certainly um, be a, a huge detriment to a lab uh, at any stage. Now, um, sort of one of the things I've done to circumvent some of the rules or, or some of the bureaucracy has been to found that company. You know, there's a lot of things that one cannot do in an academic setting, not because one shouldn't be able to and not because it wouldn't be in everyone's best interest, but it just, it takes too long and there's just too many concerns by the larger institute, hospital, uh, university about legal issues and this and that. And they could all certainly be addressed, but it, you know, by the time they're addressed, it just, it just wouldn't happen. I'll give you an example. Uh, when discussing particular, so any science one does in an academic institute or hospital, at least in North America, is owned by your institute and hospital. You don't own it. And so if you were to ever engage in a conversation with a company on technology that is owned by the hospital, there needs to be conflict of um, confidentiality agreements mm -hmm. in place, things to protect, protect the invention um, from going into the hands of the company so that the company can make profits off of it and not the institution, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you can't have lawyers draft conflict of interest agreements or confidentiality agreements for every conversation you're ever going to have. I mean, they would love to do that. It would certainly protect them, and I can understand why, but it becomes completely prohibitive and unrealistic to engage in any sort of conversation that way, mostly, mostly because those conversations happen at conferences where you will give a talk on something, 
and a, a representative from a company will come ask you some questions on it. And you know, technically, anything you're divulging without that confidentiality agreement in place is a violation of hospital policy. But you're not going to ask them to get back to you in three weeks or, or, or a month or something by the time uh, the two sets of lawyers are able to draft through these agreements and, and see that through. You really should be talking to them then and there. And so um, because of issues like this, uh, I found founding the company, which at this stage is a very small company, in the future, with some luck, it might become a big company where we have the exact same issues. <laughs> But, uh, but at least at this stage, it being a small company, I can, for, for company issues, I can make the call on the spot. Mm-hmm. And that allows me a lot of flexibility to, um, to take directions on advancing certain technologies in ways that would not at all be possible academically. So draft ag- agreements with uh, collaborative agreements with companies or, or work on projects, have the company work on projects. Um, which are decided over a cup of coffee as opposed to uh, one year, which has been the average time interval it's taken to set up collaborations with my academic lab and companies. So you can, you can see how um, sort of administrative uh, bureaucracies that are in place to protect you can become completely limiting if not uh, addressed correctly. And, you know, don't, don't certainly don't uh, sue me for this, but... In some cases, uh, you might need to consider whether it is the best approach to go through the proper bureaucratic channels or handle a particular situation or opportunity that presents itself in a different way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I would certainly keep that in mind because you are under the clock. There are a lot of uh, competitors working on the same sort of technologies in any given time. And you really want to get to whatever it is you're trying to do as quickly as possible and as cheaply as possible. You know, Jonathan, I think you definitely just wrap that back around to some of your core beliefs in the fact that these aren't so much of just like obstacles to you, but more of like just little hurdles, if you will. And then you're finding just paths of least resistance because you have a specific vision and goal in mind. And I think for, uh, for our audience out there, we just have to constantly remind ourselves that like, don't get too bogged up on all of these like naysays and details. When in actuality, if it's just kind of like doing our pilot experiments and you uh, trial and error and do it again and again, and have that same mentality when you're actually trying to move your real world uh, science forward. And Jesus, I mean, thank you so much, very much for like teach you yourself have taught me a lot about uh, how to approach uh, certain obstacles. And I myself have to admit there's times when I forget, like just to have that like brazen type of uh, leadership, like, you know what, I know what is right. I believe this to be right. And so let's just move forward with it. And I think too many of us don't believe in ourselves. So I'm saying I believe in you. So one last thing. I want to ask you is one, actually two last things is one, uh, what would be say one specific piece of advice you would give a, a, a good old Jonathan Thon when he was like this lowly postdoc starting it out, what one piece of advice would you, uh, would you give him to follow his like vision and core, uh, core vision and goals? You know, I would have, told myself to get started sooner. And it's, it's funny to say that because I feel like I've, I have done it or have followed the, the path that I've followed as, as quickly and as directly as possible. But I was caught up in that um, misunderstanding of what an academic career trajectory was when I first started out. Again, I used to think that there was a clear path one follows and had, uh, in retrospect, completely unrealistic expectations that just because I had done something very well, it meant that I was going to get the next thing. <laughs> you know, just because I'd done uh, an excellent uh, PhD, that I was going to get a postdoc. And just because I'd done an excellent postdoc, that I, would, I was going to get 
a professorship. Now, these things happened, but they had nothing to do, well, I, I, I'll take that back. They had very little to do with my accomplishments in traditional um, definitions of success and more to do with a lot of the peripheral stuff, which our networks, um, conversations with has with, with others, uh, research interests, you know, uh, business interests, vision, and just a lot of times just pure luck or accidents, you know, life accidents, things that just happen and you kind of have to roll with them. Now, I, I feel like young Jonathan uh, spent too much time worrying about how to be the model um, career trajectory, how to follow the model career trajectory, and that was time wasted. A lot of the stuff I've accomplished now, I could have accomplished four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people wait a very long time before starting their first company. Uh, I, I started mine in graduate, my first company in graduate school, but to be honest, there's no reason why one couldn't start their first company whenever one has a good idea for, for <laughs> uh, and that could be high school, right? That could be your undergraduate, that could be whenever. Uh, it could also be uh, when you're 60 or 80 or, or later on in your life. But my, my point is that don't, I would have told myself not to worry about how things should be done and just do things the way you think they should be done and let the falls the chips fall where they may and you know again if uh, if they don't pan out if things don't work themselves out the way you hope they would uh, that's fine you know at least you've tried it and you uh, and by trying you know maybe they do maybe maybe you do get part of the way to a success or the whole way to a success and that would be brilliant that would certainly uh, happen a lot faster than you would have ever dreamed of uh, on the other trajectory or maybe not at all on the other trajectory so um, the advice would be go for it. Nice. Well, one last question. What would be your definition of a life science leader? <laughs> uh, I think the very definition of a life science leader would be vision. Without vision, without a bigger picture that you can see clearly and passion uh, to drive you to that vision, you can't hope. You can't ever hope to be a leader. You could work with someone doing it. Uh, you can certainly be a partner, uh, a collaborator, or a uh, a um, technician. But what distinguishes the leaders are seeing something that no one else sees, and with that comes, of course, the the fallout, which is that everyone you're ever going to talk to about it will think that what you're doing is impossible or just foolish. Uh, and in order to see that vision through, not only are you going to have to have uh, skin made of steel, but you're going to have to have a, an infectious passion for what you're trying to accomplish because you can't do it alone. And so you need to convince at least a very, very small proportion of the naysayers that this might be a possibility under the right circumstances. <laughs> and then from that point on, it's just about gathering momentum. And momentum, uh, the first parts of it, you know, gathering the speed and the energy are an incredible amount of work, more work than you've ever thought possible. Uh, but once you develop that impetus, the momentum carries you the rest of the way. So uh, just don't lose sight of that vision because if you do, you can end up somewhere very, very different from where you had expected this to go. So, so long as you keep the, sh- the ship pointed in the right direction, um, everyone else uh, that works with you, that's on your team, will get that sense of clarity as to where you're hoping to go, and that will help align their efforts and generate that momentum that you need to see you there. Beautiful, beautiful. Just reminds me of what the good old Dr. Harvey Lodish said once. This goes out to all of the young scientists that dare to do what us old fogies said that couldn't be done. (laughs) Exactly. Well, Jonathan, uh, any last input that you'd like to send out to the audience? 
I feel like I've already said a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure there's many more that we could definitely learn. So we'll definitely put your information up on the show notes for the rest of uh, the audience to see if, a little bit more about your wonderful work that you've done. Please do. So, Jonathan, thank you so very much again. It's been amazing, amazing talking with you tonight. Thank you, Damien. All right. Have a good one. Happy sciencing. What a great scientist and an amazing entrepreneurial leader. Thanks, Jonathan. If you'd like to know more about Jonathan, his research, and his entrepreneurial venture, please go check out our show notes, and you'll see a link to all of his great published material and his company information at www.leadinglifescience.org forward slash podcast forward slash episode two. Thank you for listening to the Leading Life Science Radio Podcast. We'd love to hear from you, the listener. So please leave a comment or suggestions about questions you'd like to hear from our guests that could help you on your entrepreneurial journey. Also, please let us know what leaders in science inspire you to pursue a career in the life sciences. Till the next time, happy sciencing. I'm your host, Damian Wilpins of the Leading Life Science Radio Podcast.